at, but before we get into our passage, I just want to remember our context. So the author and pastor of Hebrews is writing a, a sermon sent as a letter to a church that he pastored. And we don't know what city, but we do know that it was an urban church in the ancient world who were facing increasing pressures because of their faith. Some were losing their homes, some were being imprisoned, some were killed. And so the author knows they have need of endurance because they're tempted to throw faith out or they're tempted to blend into the status quo of society so, so much so that they would no longer be recognizably followers of Jesus. And this was the struggle the church in Hebrews is facing. And let's be honest, this is the struggle many of us face. We want a status quo faith, a faith that doesn't rock the boat, a faith that doesn't draw attention to ourselves. And the author knows that by its very nature, endurance is difficult. Endurance is not an easy thing. And so when you're struggling, one of the things that is helpful to do is to look at examples of people who have faced similar things, see how they've endured, and find encouragement. And that's what chapter 11 was, what we call the cloud of witnesses. The author looks at various men and women of old who had a vision of who God is. They had a sense of God's promises, and they ran toward it in faith. Imperfectly so, but they endured to the end, but never actually received the promise. And he says, look to these examples, people who were imperfect but faithful, who endured but never received the promise. You have received the promise. You've received so much more. You have so much more readily available for your own endurance. And so like them, we look forward, but we can also look back now. We can look back at the, the reality that Jesus Christ came into the world, that he appeared, that he taught us about the kingdom of God, that he was crucified, that he rose, he has sent his spirit to help us. And we look forward in anticipation of when he will return. And so we, we live in this in-between space of looking back and looking forward. But as we look in those directions, we're trying to endure. We're trying to figure out what it means to be here, to be present in this moment. Today, uh, we're going to be looking at one of my favorite passages in Hebrews, perhaps one of my favorite passages in the New Testament. And in a sense, I almost feel like it's impossible to do this passage justice because it depends on 11 chapters and then the author hits us with a therefore. And so in light of all of this stuff that we haven't talked about in a few weeks, therefore, and so if there's any points where you feel like, oh, I don't get how this fits, I'd encourage you to go back and read through Hebrews and then, emphasize, and then consider this therefore statement. Uh, but as we struggle in the midst of this city, figuring out what it means to endure in faith, I, I believe this passage is of great encouragement to us. The author says, we're going to fix our eyes on something. You can fix your eyes on your struggles or on Christ. As we like to say, you know, the struggle is real, and it is, but the author is saying, Fix your eyes on Jesus. Fix your eyes on Jesus. And so the big idea in our passage is really simple. And this is what we're going to explore this morning. True joy is found by fixing our eyes on Jesus. True joy is found by fixing our eyes on Jesus. We'll explore this with, with two ideas, um, the race and the motivation. The race and the motivation. So if you have a Bible, open it up to Hebrews chapter 12. Uh, we have these gray Bibles we hand out. If you don't own one, take one home with you. Everything will also be on the screen behind me. Hebrews chapter 12, beginning in verse 1. Therefore, since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. So let's begin with this metaphor, the race. 
A few years ago, I went to my first White Caps game. Anyone a White Caps fan? And uh, unintentionally, I was seated beside the South Side section, the, the supporters section. And if you're like me, you didn't know what that is. This is the liveliest, most rowdy, debaucherous group in the entire stadium. And they exist for one purpose, to encourage the White Caps, whether it's through dance, whether it's through like having their faces painted, whether it's through drums or flags. They exist to encourage the Whitecaps and to discourage whatever team the Whitecaps is competing against. I don't know, like the Canucks or whatever sport I'm talking about. But uh, what's interesting is you can go online and you can even get liturgical training to sit in this section. So for a variety of soccer kicking scenarios, they have different responses that you can learn in advance. And generally, this is actually really encouraging for the players, I imagine to look up and know that despite how things may appear on the field, there is a group of people cheering them on, rooting for them. Our passage today is, is cloaked with these sort of metaphors. And so we need to imagine an amphitheater with ample seating, sort of like BC Place, but those in the seating are the cloud of witnesses. The author writes, we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses. We're on the field, we're engaged in the game, but there is this cloud of witnesses surrounding us, the men and women of old who imperfectly so pursued their faith, lived in endurance, and have since died and received their prize, their crown. And this cloud of witnesses, every single person from the past until now who have since died and are now with Christ in glory, they're cheering us on. The stadium is not just a corner of it supporting us. It's the whole stadium supporting us. And if we listen carefully to their examples through history, their examples in scripture, we will hear their encouragement echoing through the corridors of eternity. And so we're to imagine this and to remember that there is a great cloud of witnesses who've gone before us, who have endured, who have made it, who are rooting for us. They're cheering us on, but we should not be mistaken. We don't sit with them. The seats in this amphitheater are for those who have completed the race and we are yet to cross the finish line. We're the ones out in the field. We're the ones in the game. We're the ones engaged in the race set before us. Which means this, and I know this is an uncomfortable statement. Christianity is not a spectator Religion. You're either in the game or you're not. You're either engaged and living out your faith, or I would say you're probably not a Christian. There is no just an intellectual assent. It should change your life too. There's no spectator. You don't get to sit in the seats yet. You haven't arrived yet. You still have to cross the finish line. The author says there's a race set before us, but we should understand that this race is not just about winning. There's a rather famous story that's sometimes blown out of proportion, but it's mostly true. It's from the 1976 Special Olympics. Uh, and it's during the 100-yard dash, the gun goes off and one of the contestants falls. Now, most of the contestants, they actually pressed on and, and they're athletes. They kept their eyes on the goal and they, they fought to the finish line. But two of the contestants, not all of them, but two of them, saw their friend fall, stopped, turned around, went back, helped him up, and they crossed the finish line together. You see, they show us the heart of what engaging in the race well means for us as followers of Jesus. What matters more is helping everyone finish well, not winning, 
not being better than someone else, not competing to someone else's detriment. It means slowing down and even changing course if it means that we're all gonna cross the finish line. And so the goal is not to be the best. The goal is not to be better than. The goal is to love and to support and to care and to serve and to encourage everyone to finish this race well and to finish this race together. But the problem is the race set before us, it's not a sprint. If it, was a, if it was a sprint, most of us would be mostly fine. I don't know if I'd be, but most of us would be fine. But it's more like a marathon. But even then, you know, a healthy and ambitious person, I know someone who did this, didn't train for a marathon, hadn't gone running in years, woke up, signed for a marathon day off, and finished it. And your reaction is probably the same as mine. Like, I kind of hate you inside, but I'm proud of you at the same time. Uh, not really, but you know what I mean. Like, there's certain people who have enough skill that they could finish a marathon without any training, without any discipline. They could just get up and go and do it. They're rare though. And the Christian pursuit is not a sprint. And I would say it's not even a marathon. It's more like an ultra marathon. What was it? A hundred miles these people do. I don't know why anyone would ever want to go on a hundred mile marathon, but some people do this. And you do not just get up and do that. You have to train and you have to learn. You have to figure out how to get nutrients while you're engaged in that sort of race. It takes discipline. The Christian life is not a sprint. It's not a sprint. So we have to pace ourselves. We have to run the race well. We have to know what we need in order to cross that finish line. And as any amateur or professional athlete knows, that requires training, it requires discipline, and it means you don't get to live an ordinary life. Which is why the author writes, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. As we run the race, in other words, we want to travel light and we want to travel free. We want to travel light and we want to travel free. If we're going to place a friendly wager on who's going to win you know, a 100-meter dash, who would you pick? You know, the astronaut wearing a suit that weighs 200 pounds or so or Usain Bolt? I mean, it's obvious, right? You're going to go with the astronaut. Wake up. Come on. Okay, so, but say it's like some more ordinary guy, I don't know, let's call him Greg, this is why you shouldn't put your photos on the internet. Greg here, racing the astronaut. Who are you going to put your money on for finishing the race? Still probably Greg. So let's, let's try another scenario. Maybe St. John versus St. Peter. Who's going to win in a foot race? Now, this is Bible trivia. Who knows who wins in a foot race? St. John in his gospel says, I outpaced Peter to the empty tomb. I love that. But we know that if you want to race well, if you want to compete well, you need to travel light. You need to throw off every weight. You need to be trained in such a way that you can race. And you don't want anything weighing you down. And it's the same for anyone who wants to walk in the ways of Jesus. You see, we're not called to ordinary lives. We're called to live within the ordinary, but our lives are supposed to be unordinary because we're engaged in a race and we don't want to be held back in any way. And so just as a, an athlete makes intense sacrifices so that they can thrive in their sport, we're called to make sacrifices so we can thrive in our pursuit of Jesus. And one of those sacrifices is traveling light, laying down any weight. Julia, she loves hiking. She loves hiking like I love couch. And <laughs> it brings her life and it makes her eyes 
beam. And she loves to tell me this story the first time she went hiking when she was 12 and scrawny. And she uh, prepared her backpack. She put everything in it that her leaders told her to put in it. And she showed up on the day of. And even though her pack was heavy, she's like, oh, I'm, I'm going to be able to do this. And then they handed her the 20-pound tent to carry on her back as well. And so about 100 meters in, Julia's like, I'm done. Like, this is too heavy. I need to sit down and take a break. And so she sits down, but the weight of the pack just kind of pulled her back and she full-on turtled and was just stuck on her back, couldn't move, and just had to give in to it. The author of Hebrews, he doesn't list any specific weights that we're carrying, but he's aware that there's certain weights that will inhibit us from pursuing Jesus well. He leaves it to our own self-understanding, our own imaginings of what these weights may be, but he's suggesting that we lay aside things that aren't necessarily bad. They're not necessarily sins. They're just weights that are slowing you down. I like the way Eugene Peterson translates this passage. Strip down and start running. Strip down and start running towards Jesus. And this is an invitation then to look at our lives and ask two questions. Does this thing in my life help me run the race? Does it help me run for Jesus? The pastor and author, John Piper, reflecting on this passage, he, uh, hearing it as a young boy, he writes this. This was revolutionary. What it did, and I hope it does the same for you, was show me that the fight of faith, the race of the Christian life, is not fought well or run well by asking what's wrong with this or that, but by asking, is it in the way of greater faith and greater love and greater purity and greater courage and greater humility and greater patience and greater self-control? Not, is it a sin, but does it help me run? Is it in the way? But do you know what this sort of perspective challenges in us. It exposes us to the reality that we want to have our cake and eat it too. We want to enjoy life to the full and follow Jesus. We want to discover all that this world has to offer and enjoy it and indulge as much as possible and follow the things people say you should enjoy just in case when you die, that's it, and follow Jesus. We want as much compromise as possible without somehow being faithless. We want the radical bare minimum amount of sacrifice, but no more than that. Which is probably why the author then moves on into the second challenge. Lay aside sin, which clings so closely. You see, you travel light by asking, is this impeding me in any way? But you travel free by asking, is this actually being used by sin to trip me up? Once again, the author doesn't, name any specific sins here. He's actually more concerned about the nature of sin. It's something that clings closely. It's something that can take a good thing that might even be a neutral thing, but then make it an ultimate thing. So it may be a weight, it may not, but over time you start to think, I can't enjoy life without this thing. And then sin starts using that to make you worship that thing rather than God or to make you think that life can't have purpose or be satisfying without that thing other than God. That is sin clinging closely, using things against you. It's the power of sin. It wants us to take our eyes off of the prize. Now, the author seems to think that our weights and our sins, they're mostly self-evident. That's why he doesn't give us a list. And for the most part, they are. I'm sure right now you can think of a few areas in your life like, oh, this might be something that's 
hindering me or maybe I'm not using my time or my energy or my money in a way that is honoring to God or there might be something in your life where you're like, I know this part of me is a struggle and I'm walking against the ways of God here and I, I need the Spirit's help. I need people's help. But the truth is we can't do the important work of identifying all these weights and sins in isolation. You see, you like to think you are the expert of yourself, that no one really knows you better than you. But the problem is that, as psychologists show and as uh, Scripture argues, is we're we're prone to self-verification. We're prone to self-bias. We like to see ourselves in the best possible light that we can fathom, which then makes us blind to who we actually are or what we've actually done. So Julia, she's left, you know, 12-year-old Julia scrawny, turtling on her back. She was stuck there for 10 minutes. 10 minutes, just lying there, helpless, couldn't get the pack off. And finally, the youth leader went back and found her and saw she was weighed down, helped her up, realized, like, why did we give this 20-pound tent to this little girl? And so he takes it and carries and bears that burden for her. You see, in the same way, we need people who will walk with us encourage us, identify things that are weighing us down, and actually walk alongside us when we're carrying things that still need to come with us, but we just don't have the strength to carry. We we can't do this thing alone. We can't run this race alone. And this is where the importance of spiritual friendship comes in. The most daring thing you could do in light of this sermon, and I mean this, the most daring thing you could do, and that many of us probably won't do, But the most daring thing you could do is sit down with someone you love, someone you trust, someone you respect, someone who knows you, and ask them two questions. What do you see in my life that's holding me back from pursuing Jesus well? And the second question, what sins do you see in my life that I may or may not be aware of? In reading this manuscript, Julia's like, oh, that's great. We should do that. I was like, no, I'm good. Let's let the church do that. You know, like, this is scary. I find this a little hard. Like, it's, it's scary because you like to think you understand what's going on. You understand how people are being impacted by you or not. And then you open yourself up to someone else's perspective of you. And they see things in you that you either didn't want to see in yourself or you just uh, couldn't see in yourself. See, I don't have so much of a problem as of identifying other people's problems. I like doing that. That's easy. But it's harder to identify my own problems because I'd rather be oblivious to them. I can't tell you how many times in my life following Jesus, I've had friends who love me that sit me down and say, Alistair, like, I don't think you realize that what you said here really hurt so-and-so. Or this action that you're continually engaged in, I actually think it's slowing you down in the pursuit of Jesus. And, and honestly, still to this day, like people who will sit me down and say like, man, you're doing this all on your own strength still. You're still depending on your skill or your time or your talent. Like, I don't, I, don't, I don't think you're totally trusting him here. I think you're trusting yourself. We need friendships like this. And, but we don't want to just depend on people to call out the best in us, as important as that is. We want people to call out Christ in us. People who we invite into our lives who can know us in such a way to say, I see Jesus moving in your life that way. Like I I see his image. I see his character shaping and forming you, but there's this part that isn't all of you, but it's part of you where we might want to say, Jesus, show up. We we need you here too. We need these sort of relationships 
And so we can identify our weights and our sins together. But we don't do this because we want to become obsessed with the weights and the sins. I think that's sometimes the danger, right? The, the forms of Christianity can get so obsessed with, with sin that it's all we talk about, or we, we lose why we're talking about this stuff. We don't want to identify these things for the sake of identifying them. We identify these things because we have our eyes fixed on something better. We have our eyes fixed on something so wonderful that we want to let go of these things because they're impeding us from something even better. So, having considered the race that we're engaged in, let's now consider the motivation. Why should we run this race? How do we endure in this race? The author challenges us in verse 2. And if these are the three words you take away today, you're on good ground. Look to Jesus. Or perhaps more accurately, fix your eyes on Jesus. Fix your eyes on Jesus. When the author says fix your eyes on Jesus, he knows it means looking away from some things. It means looking away from things that might even be good things, but not ultimate things, and turning our gaze to something much better, a prize so much more rewarding. But it also suggests the impossibility of looking in two directions. We can't have it all. We are a generation of people who like to think we can multitask. And if you don't believe me, like, why is the tab feature necessary on a browser? You know, why do you have your iPad and your iPhone and your television going on at once? We like to think we can accomplish many things, but the more researchers study how the human brain works, we can't actually do it. We're physically not wired to multitask. We thrive best. We're more prone to flourishing one focus at a time. And the author says, fix your eyes on Jesus because you can't look in multiple directions at once. And the moment you take your eyes off of him, I'm sure some of you have experienced this, you can do fine for a while. And you can think, I don't really need to have this like core focus. I need just like a quasi focus. I need to look back every so often. But for the most part, I'm doing fine without fixing my eyes on Jesus. But over time, you will find that the ways that Jesus talks about are impossible to walk in by your own strength alone. The sort of forgiving, the sort of uh, grace that he wants us to extend, the compassion, the mercy, uh, the life that he models, you can't do that by yourself. You fix your eyes on him and he helps you walk in those ways. And so if we're tired, if we're weary, if we're for hungry, all, all these different experiences we have that can sometimes make us feel like this race is too much, it's too hard. Fixing your eyes on Jesus doesn't mean you ignore your problems or pretend like the race isn't difficult. It means you're fixing your eyes on the one who actually knows how to care for you better than you can care for yourself. You fix your eyes on the one who actually knows your circumstances more intimately and better than you know yourself. And you fix your eyes on the one who is able to comfort you. You fix your eyes on the one who's able to strengthen you. You fix your eyes on the one who can give you rest when you're tired. And you fix your eyes on the one who, by fixing your eyes upon, you see what's actually holding you back. And it comes to light. And you find grace and mercy through his spirit at work in us, but also through his people around us. And so the author invites us to fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. What he means by that is 
Jesus is the founder of our faith. He's paved the way. He has shown us what faithfulness looks like, but he's also given us faith. He's the author of your faith. He's also the perfecter. He will bring it to completion. Do you know how much pressure that should take off your shoulders? This faith that you have in Jesus is not your sole responsibility to maintain. Jesus is very committed to your faith. He's the author and perfecter of it. The author and perfecter of our faith, who, here's the motivation, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame. You should hear that as ignoring the shame and has taken his seat at the right hand of God in heaven. Jesus, fix your eyes on him, the author of your faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, ignored the shame and took his place at the right hand of God. Jesus ran a race, as we know well through Hebrews, that ended in a cross. And this was a public defeat. This was a place of derision and shame. This meant that you were worthless, defeated by the empire, and not worth emulating. That's the sort of shame that was surrounding the cross in the ancient world. And it says that Jesus had a motivating joy that led him to that end, that he was willing to endure the cross, to be despise that shame associated with it, to ignore that shame associated with it. But he had a joy greater than a cross. He had a joy greater than shame. He had a joy greater than death. And set before him, it suggests that this joy took precedence over everything else. It was a joy greater than remaining home with his family and enjoying their presence. It was a, a joy greater than spending more time with his beloved disciples or his friends. It was a joy greater than any meal or any celebration or any festival. It was a joy greater than being married and having kids and growing old. It was a joy greater than any joy we can know on this earth, a joy that makes all joys only partial compared to the fullness of his joy. Joy was set before Jesus. This is why he endured these things. This was his motivation. So what was this joy? Uh, According to the Oxford English Dictionary, joy is a feeling of great pleasure and happiness. Written by a robot, joy is a feeling of great pleasure and happiness. This doesn't quite hold up, does it? What was pleasurable or happy about what he was doing? But if we're going to work with this definition, it means that Jesus had a vision of joy, an expectation of joy that was greater than all the suffering, than the death, than the, the, the version of the cross. So what was this joy set before him? The joy set before him was returning home to his father. That's the passage makes very clear. The joy of God's presence, of sitting at the right hand of the father, of returning to the eternal love of the Trinity. So we could put it simply, the joy set before Jesus was the joy of returning home. A joy, we, we can vaguely imagine this joy from our own experiences, but it's surely amplified for Christ. But the joy of returning home for Christ, it's not just this sigh of relief. It's not just reprieve. And believe it or not, the joy set before Jesus is not just the joy of returning home, as good as that is. If we keep all of Hebrews in mind, the joy set before Jesus, the reason he endured the cross was to bring many sons and daughters to glory. The joy set before Jesus was returning home to the Father with his bride his people, the people he endured the cross for. His joy set before him was coming home to the Father 
with his bride. The joy set before Jesus is you, is us, is his people. Jesus endured these realities to bring you home. So what does this say of your worth? What does this say of your worth? No matter how far you may fall, no matter how entangled you may be by sin or what's weighing you down or how imperfectly you follow Jesus, what does this say of your worth? That you are the joy that gave him the motivation to endure the cross. You're infinitely more valuable than you could ever imagine. You really are. Not the future version of yourself, but you in this room right now. You're the joy set before the God of the universe. And so we fix our eyes on Jesus because this joy is set before us too. A joy has been set before us. The composer, uh, Johann Sebastian, is it Bach? Is that right? Bach? No, no, no correction. Okay, let's go with that. Bach. <laughs> Bach. He wrote this. I'm just seeing if you're awake, people. Your bitter sufferings bring thousands of joys. Your bitter sufferings bring thousands of joys. This is what's at the end of our race. Joy is waiting for us as we cross that finish line. Infinite joys, thousands of joys, a joy better than any sunrise, a joy greater than your first kiss, a joy more satisfying than the best meal, a joy more elated than an overdue reunion, a joy that exceeds holding your child or grandchild for the first time, a joy more explosive than the Berlin Wall falling, a joy that swallows up all that is wrong and every piece of suffering and death and makes it look pitiful retrospectively. Joy is waiting for us. And this is the joy that you are welcomed home into the Father's presence and you're beloved and you are his joy and his delight and you are loved through and through. This is the joy set before us. Is the moment you die and cross that finish line, enduring in faith, you will be received into the very love of God for endless joys, uninterrupted. Endless sunrises, endless celebrations, endless joys. That's the joy set before us. That's why we're running the race. To receive Jesus, our joy. And we're his joy. So here's a simple starter kit for fixing your eyes on Jesus because I think it's a lot harder than it sounds, isn't it? If it was just that simple, fix your eyes on Jesus, we'd all be doing great, but we struggle with this. I don't know about you, but I'm often the person who is still like, I'm trying to walk in a Jesus direction, but keep my eyes this way. You know, like I want to enjoy these things as much as I can, but I still want to move towards Jesus. I wrestle with that of this like, keep my eyes fixed on him and let go of these things. So how do we do it? It's really simple. You fix your eyes on Jesus intentionally through scripture, with others, and in prayer. You see, you're not gonna move towards Jesus. You're not gonna compete in this race by accident. You have to sit down and determine, how am I gonna do this? What do I need in my life to keep my eyes fixed on Jesus? But you can't do it without scripture. We don't get to just compose Jesus in our own image. You need to encounter him in the pages of scripture, especially the gospels, and pay close attention because you can meet him. You can discover who he is. And you can discern through scripture his voice, which is why we need to be in prayer, both to talk to God, to talk to Jesus, to experience the spirit, but also to hear his voice. 
to hear him confirm these words of truth in our minds and our hearts, but also that his spirit still speaks to us. And as I've said, and I'll, I'll keep saying until the day my ministry is over, you can't do this alone. You do this together. You see, these four things I've just said, you fix your eyes on Jesus intentionally through scripture in prayer with others. It's not revolutionary. This is not new. And yet I would say probably the majority of us struggle at holding all four of these things together. We might want a piece of it or some of it, but these four things are the core disciplines of what it means to follow Jesus. And if we have these four things, we might not be perfect, but you will at least have a better sense of what it means to keep your gaze and your eyes fixed upon Jesus. But here's the good news. Even if you're struggling, and I think a lot of us are, that, that this is a struggle, this race isn't always easy, it, it's tempting to look away. Even when we fail to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus, his eyes are fixed on us. Always. Always. His promise, I'll be with you to the ends of the earth. Always. Do you understand? You're his joy. He doesn't take his eyes off of his joy. You're his object of love. You're, you're, you're people you, he loves. He doesn't take his eyes off of you. From the right hand of God on high, with all power and majesty, Jesus keeps his eyes fixed on you, even when we struggle to keep our eyes fixed on him. And he ran the race for us. He finished the race for us. He's opened up this joy for us, and he will carry us through until the end. You see, if you're struggling, if you turn, even that little turn of fixing your eyes on Jesus, trying to look at him again, you say, Jesus, take my weight off my shoulder. He gladly does. Jesus, can you bear this sin for me? He gladly does. And so I'm persuaded it's best to end our morning with our Lord's own invitation out of the Gospel of Matthew. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I'm gentle and lowly in heart. You'll find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light.